Hey everybody, welcome to Rare Bird Radio. This is Karen Stefano, author of What a Body Remembers, a memoir of sexual assault and its aftermath. And I am happy to say that uh, with me today is Laura Bogart, author of the debut novel, Don't You Know I Love You. Laura, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you, Karen? I'm doing uh, okay. Not <laughs> <laughs> as well as can be expected. Uh, I should I should have said that. As well as can be expected. Yeah, yeah as well as can be expected. Um, and obviously, we're here today to talk about your wonderful debut novel. But I also just have to ask you uh, um, about this really unprecedented crisis yeah. we're all trying to navigate. And I just wanted to ask you you know, how you're coping individually and how you're coping with what must be feeling impossible some days to navigate. Um, and that's yeah. launching a book in these conditions. I mean, tell me, how, how are you coping overall? So I, um, I, I am staying with family. I'm hungering with family. So I feel kind of I don't want to say good is the word, but I feel like, okay, at least I'm doing something. Um, I'm being useful and I'm sort of occupying myself emotionally with that um, just because the scope of suffering is so intense. Um, And, you know, I'm trying to kind of hold space for that and, and, and not ignore it. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's it's so overwhelming that, um, you know, you you and I guess in this instance, I mean, me and maybe the sort of collective you have to also know when to draw back and and protect, you know, one's own mental health and well-being. So I, I guess I'm managing in that way. Um you know, and, and launching a book in this has been sort of an odd feeling because on the one hand, you know, I'd be lying to you if I said I wasn't sad when, you know, events have to get canceled. And I clearly understand that because public health matters more than anything. Um, and, you know, certainly uh, I feel awful for the small businesses, the independent bookshops, the presses, yeah, yeah. the publishers, you know, more so than I do myself. Um, but I would also be lying to you if I said that I didn't have a little pocket of grief um, for myself and, and just um, the fact that, you know, you, you have a dream of launching a book. You know, every every writer who wants to undertake writing a book certainly does. You dream of your launch. You dream of what it'll be like and that sense of satisfaction, um, and, and certainly never imagine that it's going to be at a time of such crisis and, and chaos. Um, and it does feel very strange to sort of be in a position where you're like, you know, notice me, notice my work right, right, um, right, when there are right. so many things. Um, I will say that, you know, to keep it positive, I think the literary community has done a really wonderful job of rallying around those of us who've been directly impacted by by what's happened. And I think that there has been a real concentrated effort to kind of lift us up in a way. And so while it's been hard, it's also shown a lot of the goodness of this community too. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I definitely appreciate what you're saying and that 
and and your positivity and yeah. uh, and I want to circle yeah. back to that a little bit a little bit later on in in our mm-hmm. in our conversation about what uh, the literary community is doing not just for you but mm-hmm. other people who are uh, in finding themselves in the position of having to you know, pivot, if you will, mm-hmm. in, in yeah. terms of what their strategy is. And, uh, and then, you know, like you say, I mean, you're like, you're, you're the whole, the whole essence of doing a book launch is getting out there with uh, shameless self-promotion. Yes. And, yes. And, that, and that's a hard thing to do anyway from yes. us as writers. Yes. And then, and yes. then to do it, to be doing it in a time where, tens of thousands of people are dying it's yeah uh, it's incredibly difficult yeah uh, emotionally but i but i'll i'll circle back to the literature yeah. in a little bit but um first let's let's start by uh here's my my uh standard opening question lately mm-hmm. uh you're at a cocktail party uh, <laughs> it's not a literary cocktail party it's just a, a mm-hmm. cocktail party of regular folks mm-hmm. and you meet someone new and you say oh I'm an author and they say oh you're an author <laughs> what's your what's your book about how do you answer uh, so lately what I've been saying is that I think of this book as sort of a combination of white oleander and rebel without a cause. Um, and, and that it is about a young queer artist um, who is, is trying to reconcile her own anger with her own desire for life and creation. And that it is about her struggle to separate from the vision of life that her very violent but charismatic father modeled for her and come up with new definitions of of power you know personal power and then power in relationships um so i would say that that is sort of the the elevator pitch or the cocktail party pitch for the book uh that's that's lovely and um you've You've gotten some lovely reviews Thank already you. and some Thank lovely you. blurbs. Um, Kirkus was very kind to you, saying, yes, Bogart yes, manages to thread the ghost of past violence into every scene, a well-crafted tale of domestic abuse and recovery. And then Renee Denfeld, uh, God I bless her. Oh my God. She's such a nice, she's a, oh, she's a great writer, great oh, she's brilliant. Person. And she's such a, she's just such a wonderful human being. Um, yeah. she, so Renee yeah. Denfeld said that uh, Laura Bogart's debut mm-hmm. novel, Don't You Know I Love You, is intriguing and unsettling. This is a novel that plums the depths of violence and love. Laura Bogart has written a brilliant novel. Oh. So, uh, so pull out those quotes at your cocktail party conversation, Laura. Can I just tell you really quickly? So, like, yeah. I when I got that blurb from Renee, I was literally 
in the middle of a laundromat and I just started like jumping up and down in the laundromat and I don't think anybody else quite understood why and I was like oh my god like this is Renee Denfeld she's a genius and she said this about my book so um yes I had just a joygasm in the middle of a a crowded laundry um yeah and I'm sure they're just like crazy lady crazy lady but that's okay everybody doesn't everybody doesn't need to understand and it's and it's interesting um uh, I, I worship Renee Denfeld, yes. uh, but I also think she's just such a suitable person to blurb your book. I just mm-hmm. finished uh, a few weeks ago, The Butterfly Girl. Yeah. And, I mean, a very, very different story. Yes. Than yours, yes. But, but very similar in that you, in your book, you tell an ugly story. Yeah. And so does Renee. Yeah. And yet you both manage through the writing mm-hmm. to make it ring with this lyrical beauty. So I just, yeah. so I'm thrilled for that blurb too. And I just think it's Thank so you. appropriate. Thank uh, you. And so will you give us a, a little, a little taste? Will you read for us and just give us a brief, brief setup? <laughs> So actually, this is this is the very opening of the novel. Um, so I don't know. This is sort of the the catalyst that will send um, to quote from one of, if not my favorite movie of all time, Kill Bill. This is what sets the whole um, gory story into motion. Um, so when you are ready, I'm going to read part of chapter one. Go for it. Okay. When Angelina felt her bones snap, she thought of home. She was driving down 16th Street, that narrow road bridging Silver Spring and Washington, D.C., when the Infinity SUV rocketed past a stop sign and smashed into the passenger side of her Honda Accord. Angelina's left hand shattered against the wheel, ring and pinky fingers bent at 90-degree angles. Her wrist was a sausage casing as thick and purpled as the ones her father used to jab with a fork when they sizzled in oil. Whenever she remembered him, her mouth filled with the coppery sharpness of blood. This time, she'd bitten her tongue. Angelina had never been in an accident before. She thought it'd be louder. Her mind was like the air around a tuning fork, the starts of thought. What the fuck just happened? Who the fuck just hit her? Where the fuck was her insurance card? Were sucked into the ripple and dispersed. Her right hand still held the CD she'd planned to pop in. The passenger window crackled like a spider web. Moonlight winked in the glass strewn over Angelina's knuckles. Gingerly, trying to keep her wrist straight, she raised the heel of her hand off the wheel. Her purse spilled on the passenger floor. Her graphite pencils were safe in their pouch, but her wallet sprawled open and her phone mocked her, half hidden under the seat. Angelina looked into the rearview mirror, instinctively checking for any damage to her face. At the moment of impact, her temple knocked against the door, but there was no bruising. Normally, her skin was fair. Now, she was a bloodless shade of pale. When she was in a mood to be kind to herself, she'd say that her features had the sleepy sharpness of a Modigliani woman, heavy-lidded and heavy-lipped, 
a long nose that tilted slightly to the left. At least it wasn't her father's Italian nose. Hers was too small and straight. The passenger door had been crushed inward like a beer can stomped on a curb. If anyone had been riding with her, they'd be dead. Scorched rubber chucked the loamy smell out of the air. She had wrecked near a temple, alongside the little garden adjacent to the synagogue. Whenever she drove by in daylight, she saw children crouch down with their mothers, digging. Are you okay? The girl in the infinity hadn't bothered to open her door. She'd rolled her window down, not even halfway, just a quarter. Angelina glanced at the infinity's crumpled bumper. Its headlights burned through the cracked glass like tea lights and jack-o'-lanterns. Turn. Then she looked back up at the girl's face, a smear of blue eyes and lunar pale skin, heavy curls from the box red. Her car had been knocked out of alignment. Angelina nudged her shoulder against the door and popped it open. You ran the stop sign, Angelina shouted. The girl didn't say anything back. I said you ran the stop sign. The passing cars moved fast enough to rattle her cord. Angelina's pulse beat a tattoo inside her skull. She couldn't hear the shouts and the footfalls approaching. She stared at the girl in the infinity, who looked back only once, her face inscrutable, save a slight widening of her eyes before lowering her forehead to the wheel. It's broken. A man's voice came from her bad side. Before she even saw him, she felt his fingers on her forearm. They pulled the pain out of her wrist as if sucking venom from a snake bite and consolidated it into five even points. Angelina expected him to say he was a doctor or that he'd been a medic in the war or even that help was on the way. All he said was, it's broken. She looked into his milky blue eyes and spoke in a voice that startled her. Please don't, don't let go. Sirens howled and the old man released his grip. He was gone, replaced by a petite woman in a taffy pink hoodie and matching lipstick. The woman had the heart-shaped face and exquisitely overripe features of a silent film starlet. She talked so fast, so loud, that Angelina couldn't understand her until she squinted toward her lips. Hit you, the woman mouthed over and over again until Angelina finally heard, I saw her. Angelina turned away toward the windshield. The passenger side had splintered, but the driver's side was whole. You got anything to write on? Angelina nodded toward the back seat. There was always a sketchbook and trash bag filled with wire and scraps of old t-shirts. Also a few dozen coffee cups and the receipts that Angelina had thrown out of her purse. She left her left boot on the pavement. Or she planted her left boot on the pavement. She couldn't help but notice the woman's green flip-flops. There was only a half inch of dirty rubber between her pedicured feet and the broken glass. Oh, honey, no, 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 the woman said. You need to sit back and let them help you. She flattened her manicured hand against Angelina's chest. Angelina couldn't recall the last time she'd been touched with such sudden intimacy. She never really had a girlfriend or friends who felt familiar enough for an unprompted hug or a stroke of the arm. Angelina clasped her right hand around the woman's wrist 
She took deep, shuddering breaths against the woman's palm. The woman smelled coconut lotion and hairspray, and Angelina wanted to ball that sticky sweetness into something she could hold in her mouth. The woman cooed over her. She was going to be okay. Thank God she was wearing a seatbelt. Thank God she hadn't hit her head. Angelina asked the woman for her name. The woman just said, it's okay, again, before gently pulling her wrist loose and going for Angelina's sketchbook. You got a lot of naked people in here, the woman said, thumbing toward a blank page. Her expression was bemused. You're a good drawer. Thank you, Angelina said. It was my major. She didn't know why she mentioned that. Knew the woman probably hadn't hurt her, probably didn't care. But her teeth chattered and the dry clacking sound, the staccato of molar on molar, made her feel sick. Better to talk for once in her life. Wasn't that what all her teachers said? What her mother always said? You're always so quiet. As the woman wrote everything down, she narrated exactly what she'd seen. She didn't even stop and look both ways like you're supposed to. She was texting. That's against the law, you know. She just went ahead like there wasn't no sign. Angelina kept nodding and saying, okay, because as soon as the woman stopped talking, she'd become acutely aware of how hungry and cold she was. Her left wrist was an anvil struck by an unrelenting hammer. You take that girl to court, you call me, the woman said, putting the book on Angelina's lap. The cop cars came before the ambulance. The first cruiser spooned Angelina's accord, and the second blocked off the infinity. There were two cops, a younger, stockier guy, and a taller guy who might have been a bit older. He had a hitch in his step, as if his left hip was haunted by the kind of ache coaxed out by a flush of humidity or a sudden chill. The kind of ache that she'd hold now in her wrist. Angelina watched the taller cop walk toward her and realized he'd left the driver's side open and rushed back to shut it. The stockier cop leaned into the Infinity's window. I have a witness, she told her officer. He had the kind of blunt, burnt umber hair that might have been a louder, more carroty red in his youth. He was clearly middle-aged. Still, he had freckles. Tiny smatterings and and the large ones that would invite a mother or lover to make a game of tracing constellations between his cheeks. I have her name in here. The book slid out of her hand and hit the pavement. She hinged forward to pick it up because if she could pick it up, she was still strong and capable. The officer beat her to it. He chuckled mildly as he looked down at her sketchbook. She'd let some pixies pixie-ish vixen from her theories of lying class, Sharpie, this machine kills fascists across the top. Can we call anyone to meet you at the hospital? Yes. Maybe mom and dad? I'm 21 years old, she said. Oh, you're never too old to call mom and dad, cop replied. He tried to make it sound jokey, as if it were cute somehow that you were trying to be independent. Her phone was filled with numbers she should have deleted, girls who were never going to text her back, and an international array of takeout places. The Indian woman always said her phone number as if it was her name. At 11 p.m. on a weeknight, her mother's voice would be a tiny rabbit caught in a snare. She'd yell out, Jack. Wordless mumbling would crowd the line like a storm cloud thickening in the sky. 
a decision would be rendered. They'd ask where they could find her or they'd tell her she was on her own. If her father got on, she might as well hang up. He'd only remind her that she'd wanted it this way. An insurance card and forwarding her mail. That's all she'd ask for when she'd walked out. First thing her father would ask if he talked to the cop would be whether it was her fault. She couldn't have that. Not when it really wasn't her fault. Him and her, that's how she'd always stored them. Never as mom and dad, and certainly never as home. That's amazing, Laura. I got kind of, uh, I obviously I, I read that, but hearing you read that and uh, that, that ending paragraph uh, gave me a chill. So. Thank you. I hope I didn't go on too long. <laughs> no, um, no, no. Okay, uh, cool. Um, it's so interesting uh, to me when I heard, <coughs> excuse me, way back when, uh, when you first announced, I think just on social media to everybody, I have a book coming out. I have a book coming out. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, to hear, I was so surprised to hear that it was that it was fiction um, mm -hmm. because I've been a big fan of your essays, mm -hmm. and so I was surprised to learn that you wrote fiction too. Because mm -hmm. uh, when I heard you had a book coming out, mm -hmm. I just naturally assumed it would be. A memoir. So, so mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So, um, I know that this book is about excavating damage, and mm -hmm. when you were uh, describe, you know, giving your your cocktail party description of the book, you used the word, um, you know, a personal reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And so, my my question for you is. Have you had personal experience with those things, excavating damage and finding personal reconciliation? And if so, will you mm -hmm. tell us about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've, I've certainly had to reconcile some things um, from my own past, and I have certainly dealt with anger um, in the same way that this character deals with anger. Um, I was very interested. I, I feel like the stories that we always hear about women and survivorship and, and women who, um, who have endured some form of abuse is always learning to tap into one's anger. And that's sort of where the story ends. And I, you know, in my own life, I have struggled with a, a very bad temper in the past. I have you know, I have dealt with some of the issues that the girl in the story deals with. Um, I and and I have I have always I've kind of looked at myself as being like an engine that's been revving. And I've never seen the story about the woman who has to learn how to balance her anger. I think recently we started talking about it more. But we started talking about it through the power of, you know, it's always cathartic. It's always healing. And there are some instances where being angry all the time, it's a natural response to, to trauma. It's a natural response to things that have happened to us. But it's not healthy. It's not sustainable. It doesn't encourage growth. And so that's a whole other story. 
Um, and I feel like I oft, very often got to see male characters who are abuse survivors or trauma survivors or people that had issues with anger get to go on that journey. I never really felt like we got to see a woman character do it. And certainly I felt like it was the arc of my own life because there were times when I was looking for reasons to be angry and I was looking for reasons to go off. And it was like this very addictive and propulsive thing. Um, and it stopped doing any good for me in life. And it just became this, this sort of very hollow high. And I wanted to explore that in the book. And the book was very useful at helping me understand my own triggers and mechanisms and the ways that these things had kind of failed me in my own life. If that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it does make sense. Um, and it, you dedicate the novel mm -hmm. to your own mother. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about, tell me about that. Well, you know, it's sort of one of these things where, um, my mother has, you know, supported this idea of me being a writer and and has always kind of, you know, as difficult as things can be, you know, in one's life, she never dissuaded me from that path. And when I, you know, went to um, undergrad and I was an art major and then went to grad school for creative writing, I never heard anything like you should go to law school you should go be a marketer. You should go do this. It was always, okay, this is what you want to do. You, you can and should do it. And, you know, these things are, are very hard. And even, you know, there are times we can have difficult or strained relations with our parents, but there are ways that they do do right by us. I mean, even when I was like, you know, when I knew that I wanted to write when I was a kid, when I made up stories and, invented stories you know my mother always nurtured that um and encouraged that and um I think in a lot of ways the book would not exist without that encouragement and so it felt very right to honor that yeah yeah and of course it you're right I mean it wouldn't without without that that mm -hmm. lifelong nurturing and uh yeah yeah you know, uh and yeah and as someone you know uh I, both of my parents, um, have passed away at, mm. at this point. Um, oh, sorry. I love them. Yeah. You know, but they, you know, they, they lived long, good lives. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, and our parents, they do the best they can. Yeah. Our parents yeah, yeah. are human. And sometimes mm -hmm. in them trying to do right by us they mm -hmm. discourage us from our dreams and mm -hmm. I remember being told I remember I wanted to be a writer when I was a, a child and I wrote stories uh you know as uh you know as early as elementary school and I was told you know writers yeah. are poor you don't want to be <laughs> poor do you yeah and, and I'm yeah. like oh no I don't want to be poor and um you know, so so there's it is it is interesting, like those subtle things that we're told as children yes, that we're told yes. through high school and yes. college, and uh, uh, they 
you know, they, they leave a mark and they make a difference. And so, yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like this book wouldn't exist without your mother. So God bless her. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, and it's just sort of like one of those things where it's like, you know, I mean, the message that I got was like, find a way to take care of yourself, you know, financially, but also like, you know, do what it is you want to do, you know? And, and so that, that, that's a powerful thing. That's a powerful message to get. For sure. For sure. Um, okay. So now you touched on something that would, I had uh, a question mm-hmm. about Angelina mm-hmm. uh, in the novel. She's an artist. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. So and I was going to ask, I, obviously you're an, you're an artist as a writer, mm-hmm. but um, uh, you get, you get a lot of, I'm not an artist, but like but visual like you get you yeah yeah you it seems like you get a lot of details right and so I was going to ask you did you research that but you went to art school you you are I a did. visual artist I did so okay. like that was actually my first thing that I did when I was little I drew pictures and like my mother would encourage me to draw pictures and like you know like would would you know comment on the pictures that was drawing and help me with that so that's a whole other you know if we want to talk about being encouraged artistically but I drew I drew cartoon characters I had like a crush on like the gargoyles from the gargoyles <laughs> cartoon show when I was young um and I I then the beast and beauty and the beast which probably explains a lot but um <laughs> I was one of those girls, but I drew obsessively. And then when I went to school, I, and I did figurative work. I did a lot of, I was very interested in people. I was not interested in landscape. I was not interested in um, still life. I was really not that interested in abstraction. I was interested in the human form. And at a certain point, it was like, that almost wasn't even enough for me. I got interested in exploring the human form in in writing and um because I was a reader all the time and so I was balancing like my interest in the human form like with the visual art and then my interest with like what's going on inside of that um with writing and so I when I went to I went to Goucher College and I was stud- majoring in studio art but I was taking creative writing and Goucher has a wonderful program um and I was learning um from Madison Smart Bell I was in studies with him you know it was a great literary community that we had at Goucher and that just sort of dominated like my range of interest and then when I went to um I went to grad school for, I took a year off to kind of figure out what it was I wanted to do and what it was that appealed to me and I worked Um, as a tutor at a learning center and then I found what I wanted to do was write and so um, I still draw not as much as I should I'd like to do more of it but no that is sort of where I started out artistically well that's interesting I I did not know that about you yeah um, yeah right so so going back to uh the you know, your background, you've written out essays for yeah. uh, quite yeah. a number of, of big outlets, Salon, um, mm-hmm. The Guardian, The mm-hmm. Marcus, mm-hmm. Uh, Vulture, uh, I could go on and on and on. But so 
Was it tough for you to kind of, you know, flip the switch uh, mm. uh, to fiction? Because um, when uh. I, I had been a fiction writer and mm-hmm. then wrote mm-hmm. a memoir, and I felt like I had to learn all over how to write. I mean, uh-huh. um, it's a, you know, it's just a completely different animal. So did you, did you struggle with that or uh, or do you, do you just feel like you're adept at writing both fiction and, uh, and non? Yeah. So this is very funny because I actually started off writing fiction. Um, most like when I was in college, I wrote fiction. I had like different attempts at novels. I didn't like really know how to do it. Um, I didn't, I did not write nonfiction. I wrote fiction. And then when I went to grad school, I concentrated on fiction and I again started something that was like very interesting, but I was sort of cobbling pieces together and I didn't know how to sort of complete a thought. And then when I was, I was at grad school, I was at AU and I studied. One of the things about the the program at AU is they make you take classes that are outside of your chosen genre. Mm -hmm. And I knew I couldn't do poetry. Like it was not going to be that on the world. And so I took nonfiction. I took nonfiction with Richard McCann and EJ Levy And E.J. Levy taught a class called Literary Journalism. And she was basically like, look, if you're going to be a writer, you got to learn how to do this. And we we learn how to do researched pieces. We learn how to do cultural criticism. We learn how to do sort of basically like the bread and butter um, of of just being being a freelance writer of any kind. And I was like, oh, I can finish a thought. (laughs) <laughs> this is I'm expected to finish a thought. This is radical. Um, and I really loved it for that. Um, I really, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the ways that you could be lyrical with it. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed sort of the structural challenge of putting it together. Um, and then when we did cultural critique, um, the act of learning how to pull something apart and figure out what made it work or what made it not work was so um, helpful to me in the writing of fiction. And so I knew I, I, I knew that I wanted to do a novel at some point and I was writing this, this nonfiction, writing this nonfiction. And I had had this idea, you know, the kernel of the book started, I was, in grad school, I had tried to do this like very gonzo, high conceptual piece of of um, fiction, and it just wasn't working. I was trying so hard to be avant garde and impressive, and um, people just, you know, I got good advice from my thesis advisors. It was Richard and it was um, Denise Ornstein. They said, "Start, go back to kind of the roots, go back to something small, finish a thought." And so I started, I I turned the skills that I learned, you know, in structuring essays into doing short stories. And this was originally going to be a a set of linked short stories about this girl who has this car accident and has to go back home and what that entails. And then at some point it was like, no, it has to be a novel. But I felt better prepared to finish that thought because of the work I had done in nonfiction. Um, so I was always kind of balancing the two of them mm-hmm. for a number of years, 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's very interesting. And I like that. Um, finish a thought. I think I'm going to put that on a post-it note and oh, put cool. it on my desk. <laughs> oh, good. Good. Yeah. Karen, that's hard. That's, uh, that's hard for me to do these days. Well, for, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so let me kind of go, go back full circle as we're, um, as always happens in these podcasts, mm-hmm. the time mm-hmm. flies by. Oh yeah. Um, but, um, how can the how can the community the literary community how can other writers and you know it's 99.999% writers who listen to this podcast mm-hmm. how can how how can people who are listening to this support you now i know that um for example i saw on twitter the other day that joyland uh, yes. It, yes. It's, it's, they're publishing excerpts, and they're saying, "Hey, if you just launched a book, reach out to us, and yeah. uh, we'll publish an excerpt of your book if it, you know, if we think it's a good fit for us." And and um, but like, but how 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 can people support you like that? I think honestly, I mean, and, and I will say, like me personally, like buy the book. <laughs> of <laughs> like, course, yeah. yes, yes, um, yes. Goes but well, certainly. Yeah. I think buying the book is important. And I think I speak for myself, but I also speak for other people who are impacted by this. Um, And and, um, I would say the way to support writers right now, buy their books, chat about their books on social media, tag them in calls like, like, like the Joyland thing that you saw or Lit Hub is doing something or a Mighty Blaze. Um, pitch essays and articles or, and, and interviews um, about the books. Um, that is always helpful because those are other openings that I'm seeing with um, uh, with different like publications and avenue that they're really opening up to those of us who've had launches impacted by that. Mm-hmm. I think that's very important. Um, you know, do those things you know tag people when you see it if you know they have a a launch coming out just really talking up the books because I think the thing that's very hard is there are a lot of us who are impacted by that and and we're gonna this is going to be going on in waves um and it's you know I think in Maryland we are on a lockdown at least for the better part of April um I, I think in Virginia, it was extended to June 1st. Um, So it's going to be ongoing. And I think the fear that a lot of us have, and I, I, like I said, I speak for myself, but I speak for um, a lot of other people that I've been talking to is um, that we're going to be forgotten, that it's going to be, you know, the next wave of people who are impacted is going to come. So if you buy a book and you love it, share it, let people know about it. And then honestly, even just people reaching out, this is just me individually. I don't know how other people would appreciate it and going, this has got to be really hard for you and giving permission to just have those feelings because I think people online want to be very um, sanctimonious at times and, and very performative in that sanctimoniousness or sanctimony, excuse me. Um, and I think just offering a space to go, this sucks. And I acknowledge it sucks. And I know you know that it's a lot worse for a lot of other people in the world, but I'm going to give you right, this tiny right. space to just 
be petty and be sad and, and, and what have you, it matters more than you'd think. Yeah. 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 I can, I can, I, I get it. I, I, yeah. I absolutely understand. And yeah. um, I know you, you're prefacing that by saying I'm speaking for myself. I don't know how other people uh, yeah. with newly released books are feeling, but I would think that that's, that's got to be pretty spot on for everybody, Laura. Yeah. Um, so um, on Facebook, uh, furthering to that, further to that thought, um, yes. if people want to reach out to you on social media, on mm-hmm. Facebook, you're, you're Laura Bogart. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and then what's your, what's your Twitter handle? So on Twitter, I am at, I am at LD Bogart. And my backdrop is a picture of Wonder Woman punching Donald Trump, like um, <laughs> Captain America punched Hitler and the cover of the very first issue of the Captain America comic. So nice. it, you, you can't miss it. Okay, okay. At LD Bogart, I know you and I follow each other, but yeah, yeah, know, we I, do. It's, it's sort of, it just sort of comes up. So I wouldn't have your Twitter handle memorized at LD Bogart. Mm-hmm. Um, and then are you on Instagram? I am, but you know what? It's funny. I'm actually going to pull up my Instagram right now to see what I am because I'm not <laughs> on it as much because yeah. I'm so jealous of like everyone else's like garden and everyone else's like perfect sourdough bread yeah (laughs) I'm I'm technically on it but I I literally don't know what my handle is so um, Uh, I am Laura Diana Bogart um Instagram yes but but nobody will really find you there but they will find you really uh I'm pretty active on Twitter um I'm trying to be more active on Instagram just because I'm gonna be here and my Instagram is literally just gonna be like a ton of pictures of my dog so (laughs) if anybody enjoys um images of black labs you probably hear her in the background panting um then that then it's gonna be the spot for you although my Twitter is also that too so. Yeah, well, that's my Twitter too. Um, I tweet about my book stuff. I tweet about other people's books, and I tweet about my cats, and that's pretty much it. Well, and the one thing I do, I you know, and 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 I know I sort of acknowledge you in the in the, but if I have a minute, you know, since this is something for other writers, um, I have like just a moment of advice, and this is advice you gave me when I was getting ready to launch, but just. I think the thing that has helped me the most, because I was lucky, I was like on that cusp of like March, you had told me start pitching and preparing in advance. Mm-hmm. And I was doing it months in advance. So I had already gotten a lot of coverage before this happened. And I was fortunate in that regard. But the thing I'm telling a lot of other writers who are having launches later in the summer, I'm like, start now start pitching things now start pitching articles now start you know tagging people I mean I could do a whole other podcast on just things I did that I found helpful and and you know those sorts of things now and people are very willing and able to help now so if you have writers listening to this who are going to be um launching books this summer or in the fall start now um start now yep damn straight uh (laughs) well 
Um, and, and with that excellent advice, uh, I will wrap this up and say thank you so much for talking to me, Laura. Um, everybody get yourself a copy of Don't You Know I Love You, a novel by Laura Bogart.